Our Bible reading this evening is from 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 2, verse 2. And that's on page 1,225 of the Bibles in the pews. First John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, this is, this is such a genuine joy for me to be with you here in Bloomfield tonight and throughout this week. I, I should explain to you that I've known Claire a very long time. She used to be in my youth fellowship in Bangor. That's how old I am. And, and, and Frank and I, we have been buddies since our time in Dublin together. So it's such a privilege and a delight for me to come and in their presence and with you to minister God's word. We're going to be looking at 1 John throughout this week, and this is tonight somewhat of a taster of what we're going to do. Let me take you to 1971. There was a special year for me. It was the year I got married. We moved to Edinburgh. But at the same time, in London, there was trouble brewing especially in the West End. There was a musical that was really the celebration of the 1960s sexual revolution. It was called Hair, and in it there was overt naked nudity, which of course was provocative. But in it there was a song that some of you can even sing along with me as I give you the words, when the moon is in the seventh heaven and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars. This is the, well, you know it. This is the dawning of the age 
of Aquarius. It was almost like the theme song, it was the anthem of a new movement that was beginning that did not really reach its zenith until about the 1980s, 90s, 2000. It was in embryonic stages. It's what we call New Age. I say that because when you read 1 John, I, I, you have to be taken back to the early stages to the infancy of a movement that became a major threat to the Christian church in the second century. There was a group in the church in Ephesus who claimed to be in the know. They had knowledge that nobody else had. They had gone through some sort of initiation ceremony whereby they had an encounter with the divine. And the implications was that it began to cause division and tension within a church. And everybody knows how pastorally demanding it is if there's a clique in the church, but how more difficult it was for the Apostle John, who was pastoring the church in Ephesus, to not only have a clique, but to have a group of people who were advocating what became an overt heresy. They believed, you see, that the spirit was the only thing that was important. The encounter with the divine was what it was all about. And the flesh the material world, the physical world in which we live is inherently and essentially evil. Now, now we call this, and I'm going to give you this one big word, and you don't have to repeat it or spell it. It's a word called Gnosticism. That's what this was. It was in its early embryonic stages of development. And an enormous threat to the testimony of the Christian church for two reasons, and that's what we look at tonight. The first concerns what it said about Jesus, who he actually was. If the flesh, if the material world is inherently evil, who is Jesus? And the second implication is if the body is bad, then what you do in the body, if the spirit is all important, doesn't really matter. It's of little or no consequence. And that is why here is the old apostle John writing this, which is his last will and testament to the church in Ephesus and to us from generation to generation. I say it's just like New Age. I can't believe I'm living in the same Ireland. I began my ministry in the Republic in some 35 years ago. I, I left I left you in the north where you were still debating whether you could have swings open on Sunday and whether it was appropriate on the Lord's Day to have swimming pools for the entire community. Those are the big issues because of the powerful influence of the Protestant church in the north of Ireland. In the Republic of Ireland, of course, it was quite different. We were dominated by Roman Catholic social morality. And as my wife and I discovered, there was no contraceptives available. We also discovered there was no divorce available. <laughs> that was the culture in which, in which we lived. Today, I can't believe it's the same place. We have an overtly gay Tishuk. We are now about to have a referendum on whether or not the Eighth Amendment should be removed with the implications that it will be abortion on demand for the first 12 weeks. It is a radical radical change. We are living north and south, you see, in what is increasingly not only a secular but an eclectic society. 
what I've discovered, I'm not sure so much in the North because my ministry has been entirely within the Republic, people claim to be still incredibly spiritual. Rather like the actress Halle Berry who said, I believe in God, I'm not quite sure if it's Buddha or Allah or Jehovah. Or Madonna, who was brought up a Roman Catholic, um, who practices Jewish mysticism, who got married in the Church of Scotland and her child was christened in the Church of England. That, that is normative within our culture. In Newsweek, I read that searching for a Holy Spirit, young people are openly passionate about religion, but insist on having it their own ways. Religion can be somewhat like a meal from a smorgasbord or a salad bar. Bits and pieces from various faiths can be bundled together, even if they contradict one another. Teens might cobble together bits of several faiths. A little Buddhist meditation, a Roman Catholic ritual, whatever mixture appeals at the time. Just about three weeks ago, I had the responsibility with other uh, church leaders to meet with Leo Varadkar, uh, the Taoiseach in the Republic of Ireland, and members of the cabinet. I got the short straw, and my responsibility was to speak on behalf of the churches on the Eighth Amendment on the whole issue of abortion. What I found fascinating was Leo Varadkar's welcome to us. This is what he said. He said, you probably discovered, churchmen, that I am not very religious, but then he added, but I am not a secularist. Interesting comment. His belief that there is something, there is something more. I wish I had a euro or a pound for every person who said to me, I, I'm not very religious, but I am spiritual. How often have you heard that? Well, here is the old apostle addressing such a phenomena in the church in Ephesus, which is such, of such relevance to us in the cultural context in which we live and minister. You see, it had implications in Ephesus, this proto-Gnosticism, because it was at its early stage. It had a, a profound effect on what people thought about Jesus. Well, he, he might have looked like a man, he might have behaved like a man. He might even appear to be a man. But he wasn't really a man because the ineffable, the eternal, uh, the God who is transcendent and holy and beyond us cannot become flesh and blood. It had an effect upon, you know, how they behaved they basically believed that there were no ethical consequences. These are the two issues that he addresses in this first chapter and part of chapter 2. Let me read again this section from chapter 1. Listen carefully. Here is addressing the whole issue about Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son in Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. 
Now, I want to tell you, if you're a scholar at all and know anything about Greek, this is a grammatical tangle. It is almost difficult to, to pull apart. In fact, when the translators were translating this, they kept adding verbs to try and make sense of it. But what you want to hear, and what I want you to hear clearly from this passage of these words, that which is from the beginning, the word of life was with the Father, the eternal Christ. Well, as you hear that, you have echoes, don't you? First John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. Now, I want to tell you that these Gnostics, as we're calling them, these people who are in the know, who thought everything was important about the spirit, did not have a problem about that. He was divine. It was the fact that he was flesh and blood they could not cope with. So, so this is why John says so bluntly these words. We heard with our ears. We saw with our eyes, and then the climax of his whole thesis, we touched with our hands. Now, this touching is not just simply rubbing against or brushing aside. This is like a blind man touching. It, it, it's someone in the dark who's holding on. With our senses, we encountered in flesh and blood the living God in Jesus Christ. I want to say this to you in the beginning of this Holy Week. This is absolutely foundational to the gospel we believe. That the word became flesh. You know, that is the crudest word that John could have chosen in John chapter 1, if the gospels. The crudest word, sarks. The word became sarks, flesh. Bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He took upon himself the fullness of our broken humanity. This is the anchor upon which we stand. We, we want to say to people who are perhaps new agey and spiritual, and you know, spirituality is not enough. I, I, I want to tell you, a few years ago, uh, when Gene Kennedy Smith was the ambassador to the to the United States in the Republic, I was invited, I think it was the 4th of July on one occasion, uh, to go to the, ambassador, to the ambassador's residence, beautiful home, and she asked me if I would pray at this interfaith event. And she said uh, it, would be it would be preferable, I think was the word she used, that you didn't mention the name of Jesus. <laughs> well, that was like a red rag to a bull to me. Folks, that is the very essence of what we are and who we are. It's all about Jesus. This is central to our faith. The eternal God, the God who is beautiful beyond description, too wonderful for words, has come among us. And the reality of God that we have experienced in Jesus affects everything in terms of how we live, and how we behave. But secondly, it affects you know, how, how we actually live our lives ethically, morally. Listen to this. This is what John writes. The message we have heard from him and declared to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. 
If we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. If we confess our sins, he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you believe that the material world, the physical world, which God couldn't become a part of, was essentially bad, then what you did in the body didn't really matter. It had no ethical, moral implications because the ineffable God cannot enter history. The encounter with God is everything, rather like in Zen Buddhism, when you have been taught to meditate, to reflect. You may have been given a mantra until you become one with the other, until you essentially are a pantheist in which there is no moral distinction between what could be the birth of a child or a human atrocity. They are all one. They are all divine. You're at one with the divine. Well, this is a popular view, I tell you, even among people who believe, who claim to believe. I, my, my son is a professional musician with a great bohemian crowd of friends in, in Minneapolis, in Minnesota. When he was much younger, he used to get me to sit up at night to watch the MTV Wars. Now, some of the older generation are sniggering, and some of the younger generation are nodding. Yeah, you've sat up for the MTV Awards. It's these music awards given to these people. And what I used to find fascinating is that people would come forward and receive their award, and they'd thank their agents and their parents and everybody under the sun. And even though they'd sung songs that were demeaning to women, in my opinion, that times were sexually explicit, that were morally unacceptable, they would always end up with saying, I want to thank Jesus. Britney Spears claims to be a Christian. Um, she came, she came to, to Dublin many years ago. And uh, remember during the interview, she said she needed a Christian husband. Well, she, the twofold requirement for her husband was one, that he was a Christian, and two, that he was a Capricorn. <laughs> really? You know, the, the concert that this person who claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ put on in Dublin was so um, sexually explicit and uncomfortable for parents that drove, droves of parents just took their children out of the concert. People somehow feel that you can combine these two things because what you do in the body doesn't really matter. So the protonostics these folk in Ephesus had a twofold slogan. Here's the first. We have fellowship with the divine. And here's the second. We are not morally responsible. Well, you know what? When I have given this address on the Republic of Ireland, and it's, a, you know, I always say to them, this is so appealing if you have been raised with Catholic guilt. It's almost a sociological phenomena. You just carry this guilt. It's a bit like evangelical guilt. And you think how wonderful to be rid of all of this stuff that is imposed upon us from outside. And so it's easy for us to say, look, I'm not really responsible. It's what I've inherited in my genes. It's essentially genetic. It's social conditioning. It's what I consume. Do you remember? Some of you remember the famous 
Twinkie case in America. A guy who had lost his job, I think it was in San Francisco, went and got a gun, which Americans can do, as you probably realize, and he shot dead the mayor of San Francisco. He'd lost his job. Well, his defense was that on a regular basis he had eaten, eaten this really sweet food called Twinkies, a Twinkie. Some of you, you know, who've been to the United States will have seen these things, full of ease and, and all sorts of appalling contents. Now, the argument of, the, of his defense was that these Twinkies had so addled his brain that he was not responsible for shooting dead the mayor. Well, this was the United States of America, and he was acquitted. Listen to this poem of Anna Russell. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed the cat and blacked my husband's eye. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find, and here's what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mummy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and this is why I suffer from kleptomania. <laughs> At three, I had the feeling of ambivalence towards my brothers, and so it follows naturally I poisoned all my lovers. But I am happy now. I've learned the lessons this has taught. Everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. Is it any wonder John says to these characters in Ephesus, you must be joking. Wise up, guys. You are deceiving yourselves. This is not the God of light. This is not the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob you claim to know. This is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we do lose, use language like this, don't we? Even some who have been through the whole process of the educational system, maybe they've been taught to, they're not to say to children that's right or that's wrong. You say to them, Maisie, this is inappropriate. Peter Kreft, who's an American philosopher, professor at Boston College, gives the lovely story of, of driving four-year-olds on an outing with their teacher and, and this particular one, you know, Susie was just a menace. I mean, she was a pain. And, and the teacher kept saying, Susie, that's inappropriate. Susie, that's inappropriate. Until one of the other children, in desperation and frustration, says, Miss, don't tell her it's inappropriate. Tell her it's wrong. Says Kreft, the philosopher, I could have broken into applause, he said to go into a restaurant, in a fancy restaurant, and not wear a jacket may be inappropriate. Not to pay your bill is just wrong. I said earlier it's possible for us to have guilt foisted upon us. I've lived in the church long enough to know what that's like. At times we're given burdens that are completely inappropriate, that are not from God himself, but you and I know there is real guilt. Real guilt in the presence of God. That's why John says we need to confess our sins. 
Well, I've been married long enough. You know how long I have been married, since 1971. You do the maths. I've been married long enough to say, sometimes when we say sorry, we don't really mean sorry. What we really mean is, I want a bit of peace around here. <laughs> I, I can't cope with all this. Oh, coming. You see, true confession is when you enter into the pain of the one that you have deeply hurt. That is why in the scriptures, confession is often identified in the presence of God with tears. Because at those moments, you feel something of the pain of God. And John says, if we confess our sins, if we genuinely confess our sins, he will wash our consciences clean. <laughs> you know, it means it's, they're never going to be mentioned again. I don't care what it is. Never, ever mentioned again. And the grounds upon which we can be assured of this, says John, is twofold. The, the first is the faithfulness of God, and the second is unusual, and I'll come to that in a moment. The faithfulness of God, of course, is the faithfulness to his promises. You can stake your life on what he's promised. Because he said, the God who cannot lie as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed all your transgressions from you. Fini. You stake your life on that. But here, secondly, he says, the second ground, which is unusual, you would expect him to say, well, we can be assured that we will be forgiven because God is loving. Especially in John, 1 John, which is all about God's love. But in fact, he anchors the forgiveness of God in justice. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How unusual, especially in the words of the old bard, if justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us will see salvation. But then he said, the basis of his justice is the work of a paraclete, that's the word in Greek. John uses it in, in his Gospels to refer to the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, but here he, he speaks of Jesus Christ. Now, a paraclete essentially is a QC, is barrister, someone who goes into court, into a court context, and before a judge, and argues on your behalf. So on the principle of justice, our paraclete, Jesus Christ, is arguing in the presence of God on the principles of justice. Because, as John says, he died for our sins, you see. The one has died, the just, for the unjust, in order to bring us to glory. I, I'm not sure that you fully appreciate and how difficult forgiveness is for God. Well, we know how difficult it is. 
I had the privilege and responsibility to preach at the 20th anniversary of the Enniskillen bombing. And before me, um, there were some who had forgiven those responsible. There were some who could not forgive because the pain, even as Christians, was so deep, so deep, that they could not forgive. And there were some who would not forgive because for them it was an insult to the memory of their families and friends who had been butchered in this atrocity. You see, forgiveness is practiced, as you see in the very character of God, where there is justifiable anger, where there is deep, deep pain, where there is moral outrage. It is in that context that that God forgives us because God in Christ has died for us. I I know you have tried at times to, to practice forgiveness. What in fact happens is this, that that you follow the pattern of God. You, you choose to practice mercy if you're to forgive someone, even though you're angry. My word, some of you are so angry with those who have betrayed you because your marriage is broken up, because you have a member of your family who was assassinated. The anger is so intense. But a moment comes when you choose to practice the miracle of mercy. Something happens. You begin to feel soft and compassionate even towards that person. But in order for you to fully embrace them in forgiveness, it is necessary for you, and I use these terms carefully, but you need to become like a substitute. You yourself must embrace and take the pain and the judgment that they deserve. You've got to take it to yourself. That's how difficult it is for us. It is even more difficult for God. Here is love vast as the ocean. It's an amazing declaration of God's extraordinary love. Where justice and mercy meet in the cross. Through which he chooses to be merciful to us. And to forgive us. He died for our sins. And then he adds these words, which is so important if you've listened carefully to what I've said. He died for our sins, but not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, as evangelicals, you would probably think what that probably means is that everybody can then be forgiven if they repent and believe. No, no, he's saying something much more profound than that. God himself has come among us in flesh and blood into this fallen, broken world that's completely out of sync. This is not the way it's meant to be. And he has died not just for our sins who believe, but for the sins of the entire cosmos in its organic completeness, I would say. 
so that every dimension and aspect of this world that is broken and fallen and ruptured culturally, socially, economically, relationally, all of those dimensions in this world, in this world of flesh and blood, in this world of stuff and economics and of beauty and of language, everything has been redeemed through the amazing sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross because he died not just for our sins, but for the sins of the cosmos. of the world he created and said it was good. His plan was to restore paradise. If we believe in Jesus Christ, as we will discover this week, we have eternal life, which means we are participants in the life which is to come, in this new age which is to come. (laughs) in this new era of a new heaven and a new earth when the entire created order is restored in Jesus Christ. We are part of that already because he died for your sins and for the sins of the whole world. Hallelujah. Amen. We're in for a treat this week, aren't we? Tomorrow night, 7.30 here in this building. Tuesday evening, 7.30 in the Methodist building. Wednesday evening, 7.30 in St. Donard's. And then Thursday evening, back here at 7.30. Shall we say the words of the grace together? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.